Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news, evolving methods of providing legal service, and law practice issues. My name is Mary Vandenack, founder and managing partner at Vandenack Weaver LLC. I'll be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about closely held business, tax, trusts and estates, legal technology, law firm leadership, and well-being. Before we start today's episode, I want to thank our sponsor. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. There's always a resistance to change, particularly with attorneys. Attorneys like to look back at what's worked in the past, and that makes a lot of sense. But when you realize that with a good automated drafting system, you can do a better job for your clients, deliver documents on a more timely fashion, in a more consistent and in a more costly manner. If you're not a subscriber to Interactive Legal, I urge you to go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. And you'll be contacted about having a demonstration of Interactive Legal for you, which can be done right over the Internet. Don't have to leave your office. No salesperson will call. We can arrange it at a time inconvenient for you. So please go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. Currently, we're doing a series of episodes talking about business exit planning. And for this series, I've involved my partner, Mike Weaver, to discuss some of the techniques that we use when business owners are considering exiting their business. In a previous episode, we talked about considering what you need to do at the business level before a sale. Today, we're going to talk about some of the trust strategies. So we always kind of go through level one is let's look at the business. Let's figure out where you're at, what your structure is, what's going to be tax efficient. And then we shift to saving taxes on the transaction. And we look at both estate taxes and income taxes when we start to consider that. It's kind of as we talk through some of these trust techniques, one of the helpful concepts is just to clarify a couple of the references that people will hear about types of trust. And one of the types of trust that is referred to is what's called a grantor trust. Can you, Mike, give us a quick overview on what is meant by a grantor trust? Sure. Um, I think it's important to, from the from the start, recognize that a trust is a separate legal entity. So it's it's separate from, from a legal standpoint. It's separate from you. It's separate from me. If I set up a trust, it's it's separate from me. For tax purposes, that's not always the case, and that's where a grantor trust can come in. So you mentioned the two different types. So of, income tax or estate taxes? Are you going to make that distinction yeah, for just, me? Okay. Yeah, so you, you mentioned the fact that there are income taxes and there are estate taxes, and those are two different things. So what a grantor trust does, um, it is treated differently for income tax purposes than it is for estate tax purposes. A grantor trust for income tax purposes is what we would call disregarded in the tax biz. So that means if I set up a grantor trust and I'm the grantor, the creator of the trust, that trust for tax purpose, for income tax purposes is disregarded. So for example, let's say that trust, that grantor trust that I set up owns 100 shares of Tesla and Tesla kicks off a dividend of $50, 
um, that $50 is taxed to me individually on my personal income tax return. So the trust doesn't pay the tax because it's disregarded for income tax purposes. I pick that up on my return. And, and so that could be true. Where, where you said is like we could have different treatment for income and estate tax purposes, but it is also possible you have kind of a basic revocable trust that a lot of people will set up as sort of a foundational estate plan where it's almost their alter ego. They might be their own trustee and that all that income is going to continue to flow through to me, but that particular entity will be included in my estate. Right. So the difference with the grantor trust is like, like we were saying, it's in it's disregarded for income tax purposes, but it's, quote, regarded for estate tax purposes. For estate tax purposes, so it's not considered. Is this usually ir- an irrevocable trust versus my example of the right. revocable? So we have the revocable trust, right. which is I set one up. I can get rid of it. I can dump it. This one is going to be taxable to me for income tax purposes and included in my estate. Correct. Then we have an irrevocable grantor trust. And now that trust is going to be taxed to me for income tax purposes, but not included in my estate? If the if that grantor trust is set up properly, that's correct. So go back to my example of my 100 shares of Tesla. For income tax purposes, it's going to be included as part of me. But when I die, that 100 shares of Tesla is not going to be included in my estate. So, so what's the advantage of that? Well, the advantage of that is I can uh, remove... I can remove things from my estate at hopefully a very reduced either estate or, or really a gift tax cost. And you're continuing to pay the income taxes on it, which when you pay those income taxes, is that a gift for gift and estate tax purposes? For tax purposes, no. So I'm leveraging. Correct. Basically, I'm making a gift without making right. a gift. Right. So if I'm really trying to reduce my estate... This is a way of leveraging. Right. So I put you know, $10 million in this irrevocable trust. I'm still paying the income tax. A lot of grantors don't actually like that, though, right? Even if they have lots right. of money that they're trying to give away, it's like, wait a minute, I put this $10 yeah. million in the trust, and I don't have access to it. I'm still paying the taxes on it. People do not like to pay taxes, but you gotta, it's, it's hard to point out to them, yeah, but what you're really doing is you're making a further gift by paying that tax because the tax burden is not on you know, on your kids or whoever you might have given that stock to. So it's a leveraged way of continued gifting. So one of the common pre-sale strategies that we see used is what the acronym is GRAT. And GRAT refers to Grant or Retained Annuity Trust, right? right? Can you give us a sort of elementary version explanation of what a GRAT is? Sure. And when a business owner should think about it? Yeah. Maybe Um, that's two separate questions. Yeah. Let's, yeah, let's, Just what a GRAT is first. So a GRAT is one of those irrevocable trusts that is structured as a grantor trust. And basically what you're doing is you're putting property into that trust. So let's go back to my example. You're going to put 100 shares of Tesla into that trust. Normally that's going to, because it's an irrevocable trust, that's going to, it can be considered a gift for gift tax purposes. So I just made a gift of $100 or 100 shares of Tesla to whoever the beneficiaries of that trust are. But the way the grat is, the way the grat transaction works is I take back an annuity payment that is equal to the value of that 100 shares of Tesla that I put in there. So for gift tax purposes, it's a net zero, right? I put $100 in, 
and I take a hundred and I take a hundred dollar annuity back out. So even though it's a gift, it's, it has it's it's a valueless gift because because I netted it out through the annuity. So you don't have to use up. So currently, people have an, a little in excess of eleven million. I think it's almost twelve mm-hmm. this year to use as a gift tax exemption. And what you're saying is when you fund a graft, a grat in the manner that you have just described, I'm using none of that exclusion. But normally, if I were to give you $50,000, 15000 of that is eligible for an annual exclusion. Right. But I've made you a gift of the difference. Right. And so then I'd have to file a gift tax return and report that gift that I made to you. Right. But if I put this into a grat, and this is what we refer to as a zeroed out grat, right. correct? right. Do I have to file a gift tax return? You should still file a gift tax return because you're, you know, even though it's a net zero gift, there is a value of a gift that you're making. You're just taking an annuity back to zero it out. And so if I'm taking this annuity back to zero out, why am I bothering? That's a good question. This is, this is kind of what we call an estate freeze technique. Cause really let's take a look at what it's doing. So I'm taking that hundred dollars out. So immediately after the transaction, I'm no better off than when I, when I did the transaction, I got rid of a hundred dollar, I got rid of a hundred dollar asset, but I took a hundred dollar asset back. So my estate hasn't changed anything. I haven't accomplished anything. The goal that you have though, is um, the, the asset that you put into the grat you hope is going to appreciate more than the required annuity payment. So the annuity payment is going to be based on some interest rate, and you hope that the that the uh, that the value that the value that the asset grows faster than interest rate. So go back to my example. I put 100 shares in, and it's worth 100 bucks, and it's a two-year grat. Let's say at the end of that two years, if the value of that 100 shares is now instead of 100 bucks, it's 150 bucks. I just got 50 bucks out of my estate and into the hands of my beneficiaries without paying any transfer tax on that. That's, that's the play that you're trying to make. So if I put some Apple stock into a grat in, say, 2019, and then at the end of the two years, then that's where, I don't remember, I think Apple stock is, I, right. the value of that's gone off the charts. But that's the perfect example of where this technique works. Right. When does it fail? Well, when the value of that asset goes down, well, goes down is when it fails. Uh, and that's why a lot of people like these shorter-term two-year grats because then they're not locked into it for a long period of time. And hopefully if there is a loss, it's maybe not that significant. But from a business sales standpoint, you, you know, if you're going to have a transaction where you, you think the value of your business is going to go up, say, in the next, the next couple of years, you know, and again, this is where forward thinking comes in handy. If you're if you're thinking of if you're contemplating selling your business, if I put if I fund the grat, you know, before I've got a real potential purchaser on the line, and that's maybe driving the value up, or if I think you know in the next two years I know I'm going to have uh, just two great years that's going to really increase the value of my company. If I do this grat now in two years, when I sell the thing and the price is a multiple of five or six times higher than what you know. I originally, when I first set the thing up, I've just gotten a tremendous amount of wealth to my heirs without without paying any transfer tax on it. And that's where it's a great strategy. That's where it's a good strategy for uh, for someone who's thinking about selling their business. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors, Carson Private Client. 
Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory service is offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Okay, let's continue our episode. So another strategy that we use, and I always love our acronyms, and so this one we call an IGIT. Right. An IGIT means intentionally defective grantor trust. Can you give us a brief explanation of... I know brief is impossible when it comes to describing an right. IGIT. So can you just give us an explanation of what an IGIT is? So it's it's not dissimilar from the GRAT um, in that you're, it's, it's a freeze technique. So again, you're setting up an irrevocable trust. It's set up as a grantor trust. Um, you, instead of making, instead of putting an asset in and taking an annuity back, you're basically putting an asset in, you're selling the asset to the IGIT, and you're taking back a note equal to the value of the property that you sold. And in that way, you're zeroing out the value of the gift. So technically what I do is I sell $100 worth of stock to my IGIT, and I take a $100 promissory note back. So let's say I do that with $10 million. So let's say I have some stock, and it's valued at $10 million. Now, there's this whole thing that we hear about called discounting. Mm -hmm. When I sell this to my IGIT, so I create an IGIT, and I have $10 million of stock, am I selling it for $10 million, the fair market value, or am I allowed to take any discounts on that and sell that for, say, $7,500,000? Right. And the answer to that is probably, but it may depend. For example, if I'm selling Tesla stock... You know, I'm, no go. I'm probably not going to get a discount on that because it's it's readily tradable. What if I'm selling non-voting stock in closely held company that owns franchises across the country? Yeah, that's that's going to be eligible because eligible eligible for some discounts because it is non-voting. So they don't have you know whoever when I sell that whoever's going to buy it is going to have no control over it because it's non-voting stock. So they're going to say. I'm not going to pay you the exact fair market value. I want some discount off of that fair market value because I can't control what you're selling me. So you'll get a, you can get a discount for that. You can get a discount for lack of marketability, meaning unlike Tesla, I don't have a ready, a ready market where I can just go out and whenever I want to liquidate, sell it. It's harder to sell, so I can get a discount for that too. So depending on how that gift, what what that gift actually is, and maybe how it's structured you will be eligible to take some discounts or you may be eligible to take some discounts. So that further enhances the tax savings because now instead of, you know, you've got a million dollar gift or a $10 million gift, but you were able for transfer tax purposes, value it at seven and a half million. But in, but uh, you know, from your standpoint, it was a $10 million gift. 
And we can generally do the same thing with the grat. So I want to kind of back up to saying we have this grat thing and we have this idget thing. And so when should we use a grat versus an idget? So in this grat, I've got this absolute annuity payment that I have to make. And if I don't have cash in there to make that payment, what do I have to do? Well, what you're really doing, if you don't have the cash in the grat, if you don't have the cash to make that annuity payment, you're really transferring back part of the shares um, to, to, the, to the grantor of the trust. So if I create the trust and I put 100 shares in and just for really simple math, the first year annuity is $50 and the second year annuity is $50. And at the end of the first year, there's no cash in there. It's just the stock. And let's say it hasn't gone up in value, then you're just going to transfer me back $50 worth of stock to pay that annuity. And the goal is really to have the stock stay in there. So we really right. would prefer. So is it better to have some type of stock that is paying dividends or some throwing off some cash to pay that annuity? Yeah, it can be. Just keep in mind that it is a it is a grantor trust. So any of the any of the dividends that it's kicking off is going to be taxable to the the grantor of that trust. And so the IGIT, what's the advantage of the IGIT and the note? Well, the agent in the note, A, it, it gives you a little more, you can do a little more long-term planning with it. Um, like I said, with the grats, uh, the, the zeroed out short-term grats are popular because they do kind of reduce the risk of the, the asset going down. Um, with the with the agent, you, you're not, the, that concern maybe isn't there quite so much. So you can do some longer-term planning. You can stretch out that those payments and make that a little more palatable so that, for example, you don't have to transfer back stock and you get to keep the asset in the in the idget. And the typical idget involves a part gift, part sale. And there's commentators vary on how much they think you should have go in as what we call seed capital. Right. Right? Is there I think the general rule is about ten percent. So if you wanna make a million dollar gift, you ought to have um a hundred grand in there already. Um and you're gonna probably wait, so is it a hundred thousand gift and a the rest of that is sale, or I just want to clarify that structure. Yeah, it'd be if you're putting a million dollars in. What the IRS wants you to have is ten percent of that sort is of as, equity. As so we made money, a gift right? of ten percent, right? And then the note is for the rest of that, right? Okay. So, and another thing that's kind of gone on, and do you have any other thoughts? I was going to shift to some of the income tax planning strategies that we use. Nope, let's do that. Okay, so one of the things is a lot of people, even with successful businesses, aren't necessarily running into the exemption. And so income tax planning has become as important. I've always thought it's as important as estate tax planning right. personally because my deal is if I pay income taxes, I have less cash currently. And, hey, if I'm dead, I'm not sure I really care how much is left for my kid, to be honest. So I personally am pretty passionate about the income right, tax right. planning piece that is right in conjunction with estate planning. And what we've seen in recent years is states have hugely varying rates. And you look at California, for example, which I think is 13.3%, and they were adding some type of excise tax. I almost have trouble keeping up with right. all the California tax legislation. Then we have several states that have no income tax or they have income tax depending on certain situations. And so if you're, say, a resident of a state like California or a high-income tax state, 
And even Nebraska, frankly, has a fairly high income tax rate, but we have a law in Nebraska that makes some of our strategies kind of difficult to do, which we won't get into that today. But one of the strategies is what's called an intentional, we call it an, a, it, well, it can be a, it's an ing, right? Right. It's an intentional non-grantor trust. So we talked about what a grantor trust is. What's a non-grantor trust? A non-grantor trust would be one where um, it is basically separate from me. So when I set up the trust, a non-grantor trust would be one that pays its own tax. It pays its own income tax. Um, so if, if there's 100 shares of Tesla in there and it kicks off a $50 dividend, I don't pay that tax as the grantor for, of a non-grantor trust. That trust pays the tax. So the strategy with the ing, and the common ones we see are sings, dings, and nings, right? right. right. Ning is the Nevada intentionally <laughs> non-grantor trust. And then if it's in South Dakota, we add an S to the ing. If it's Delaware, it's the ding. Those are the right. most common states. There's some other states that do those, but those are those states that have really kind of focused some of their trust laws to make this possible. Now, we do see states, and currently California being one of them, is looking at some legislation to try and make this a more difficult strategy. What we've got to do when we do structure an ing is have a type of income. Essentially, what we're trying to do, right, is we're trying to take California income and move it to Nevada. And Nevada has no state income tax, so a great state to live in. It's also got reasonably nice weather. I don't love Las Vegas, but there's other great places, right? right? right. And so it's also got great trust laws, great asset mm-hmm. protection laws. Delaware does, and our neighboring state, South Dakota does. There's several other states, so I'm not meaning to leave any of those out. But these are the ones we've done a lot of work with in recent years. But let's say you're a California resident. You've got, uh, you own a business. You're getting ready to sell it. You don't really, maybe you've used up all your state tax exemption or you don't really care and all you're trying to do is save some state income taxes. So what you do is you create this non-grantor trust in Nevada, Nevada, correct? Right. Now, how do I keep California from taxing that? Can I do it if uh, what I'm putting in that trust is California real estate? No, because California real estate is going to get taxed in California. Because it's source income. It's source income. So you have to be really aware of the source income rules when you structure these. So what if I set up, what if I have an S corporation that does business in California? Am I going to get that into, am I going to get that taxed in Nevada? And it's probably not because it's probably still going to be source flow through and it's going to flow through to the residents. So that's a bigger question. The best case scenario, right, is I have a C corporation and it has income from a variety of sources, and none of those sources are in California. And not just California. I'm picking on California because we have a lot of familiarity with that recently. But any of the high-tax states that we're trying to remove income from to another state, the best asset is a C corporation, maybe with income that you're not going to have source income. So right. it's as much. Maybe it's a consulting corporation. Right. So you might have the individual who's getting paid out of there might have be taxed in the state there and providing services, a whole nother conversation we won't get into. But for this strategy, what we might do is say, take some C corporation stock that's owned by somebody in California and we create this non-grantor trust in Nevada and then the corporation sells and the trust pays, we still pay federal income tax. This is not a federal income tax reduction. But what we do is we've lost the state income tax. So if you're California paying 13.3% or the other states, pretty, or Washington and Oregon, I think, have pretty high 
state income tax or any of those. And what you're doing is you're reducing that state income tax rate. What we're not doing is we're not doing anything for state tax purposes with this, right? Because it's a that that's correct. It's a it's a it's a non grantor trust, but the the transfer that you make is incomplete. So for a state for a state tax purposes, it's incomplete. So for a state tax purposes, it's still included in your estate. And so what we do is we've kind of reversed the strategy, right? right. So now we're changing that, saying, hey, this is still going to be in your state, so we're not going to reduce your estate. We're just purely trying to avoid or reduce the state income taxes. Which is where we started. We wanted to reduce income taxes, state income taxes, and that's 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 what the goal of this thing is. And so how do we make sure that we maintain that non-grant or trust status? Well, uh, you do have to be careful about what types of powers that, uh, that you do have and the distributions that you take out of it. Uh, so if I have my California residence mm-hmm. and we form this Ning, so we have that in Nevada, and then we just start distributing them cash. Well, the distributions of the cash. They can create issues. They don't necessarily, right? It doesn't have to, no, but it can. Um, Depends a little on the structure of the trust. Right. What might be a bigger issue is if I take the proceeds of that, so I put everything into the name in Nevada, sell it, avoid state income tax, but then I invest the proceeds back in California real estate. Right. And then I've created California right. source income. That's a problem. So I've defeated. So the thing with the Ning is there's a, there's a significant amount of issues that you have to run through. And whatever state's income tax you're trying to avoid, I think one of the big mistakes that we see made are how powers to appoint are structured, how rights are structured. It's a whole art and science IRS isn't currently ruling on these trusts, but it is a really common strategy in in reducing state income taxes. And there's some other trust types that we can use. Those are the three that we're going to cover today. And so I want to thank you, Mike, for participating on this. We're going to talk also, our, our third favorite topic is the charitable strategies, which is another thing that people consider. As we get to the end of our episode, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal and Carson Private Client. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to this week's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. A Huda Media Production.